I like, I like light. I talk about light quite a bit. Yes, uh, I know. But it's marvelous. It really is marvelous. As a prism reveals, we, we've all looked through a prism, right, and, and seen how when the light pierces through it, it, it separates and it shows that uh, all the colors of the spectrum are in this light. Now, even more amazing to me is that light is required to reveal the color of matter. I don't know if you, you did some sort of experiment with this when you were a kid, but anything, anything, uh, a shirt, sweater, a chair, a tiger, anything, everything is composed of tiny atomic particles of unique types arranged in really particular ways. And each special arrangement will show itself as having a color or a, a color combination. Everything that we're looking at, including ourselves, is arranged particularly uh, so that it has a color, but it requires light. It requires light and an interaction with an eye to make itself known. The color of anything. Me and th this. It requires light for us to, to know what color this is. Things have color, but not without light. That is wondrous. That, you, you can just ponder on that one for a while. The Bible says God is light. Meaning, not that he's uh, waves and such. Meaning, there are qualities of God that are like this. There are qualities of God that are like light. Such as purity, perfection, making clear, revealing what is. So just like I've been saying, just as light is required to, to bring vibrancy, to bring the vibrancy of things of the world... Uh, and to show their color. The power of God is required for a person to be truly himself, to be truly herself, to show its color, for the design, for the essence of a person to be enlivened, to be fully activated. God is necessary. Just as we need light to see and to make our way in the world, we need God to understand and to make sense of everything. We need God. God has no needs. We need, he does not need. We are not on an equal footing. This is not a reciprocal relationship. It's not a give and take. That we need God is humbling. You might even have bridled at the statement I just said, that God doesn't need you. It's humbling. It's a hard truth for humans to swallow, but it is an essential truth. In fact, it is a truth necessary to experience salvation at all, but also to experience ongoing resurrection life. As we've been discussing, in the weeks following Easter, if you're visiting with us, we've been talking about 
the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that continues to be active in the world. We've been considering how that life comes to the people that Christ has redeemed. So what does the scripture mean? That the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives in you. Now works in you. Well, we've built on the idea that, that wherever God is working, wherever God is, his truth is working. He can't, you can, we can't separate God from truth. So wherever he is, truth is also working. And truth heals us in the inner being. Truth heals the soul, in the soul that's being renewed for everlasting life. So today, I want to invite you to open yourself to the truth that you need God. And also to accept his declaration and his promise that he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to those who accept that they need him. Well, that we need God, the fact that we need God, it's revealed without doubt in the fact that in his coming in Jesus Christ, that God came to us, that God must come to earth, must enter into his creation, become a human being, indicates the inability of people to rescue themselves. Right? I mean, we had, we had relco- welcomed the reign of darkness. We had lost the power to overcome evil. We lost the power to overcome, and we had become subject to death. Death working itself out in everything. And we had become subject to the final consequences of death. So Paul summarizes this state. Sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Likewise, in Ephesians, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So one, we were subject. We were imprisoned. One more powerful than us. One more powerful than the fallen angels. More powerful than the prince of the power of the air. One able to overcome even death had to save us. There was no saving for us left to ourselves. And when he came, we didn't contribute anything. Again, hard for us to accept, we didn't contribute anything. Consider the passion of Jesus. I mean, Easter wasn't that long ago. Did any of us help him with it? Did any of us take part in his ability to walk through the rejection, walk through the suffering. And then when he was obedient to his task, when he accepted crucifixion, 
When he first accepted condemnation from the Jews and he accepted condemnation from the Romans, did any of us stand by him? Any human being at all, did anyone stand by him? Did any accept a place beside him, even as a partaker in his cause? Anyone raise the hand and say, yes, I'm with him. Not a one. It is highly significant that everyone fled. Everyone. It's significant that no one supported him. No one spoke for him. No one went with him. In the redemptive act of for mankind, in the atoning sacrifice of the cross, we contributed nothing, not even encouragement. As we often sing, Jesus paid it all, alone, utterly alone. This is the way it had to be. This was, it was foretold in the prophets. It had to be this way. Because we really cannot contribute to the salvation of our souls. It had to be, we're so stubborn. It had to be manifest in the very outworking of it. We had to see it. Or we would claim some role. We really cannot contribute to the salvation of our souls. Metaphors fail. But I don't think we, we typically grasp just how impossible our situation before God is. It, it is on the scale of cosmic movement. Like, I cannot make daylight by wishing. By any effort on my part, I cannot turn the night to the day. And, and should human beings, could human beings, everyone, work all together? Could we cooperate with complete agreement? Could we at all affect the movement of the earth, the motion of the planets? How much greater is the maker of the cosmos than the cosmos? But even here, we, we fail to fully understand our helplessness before God. If we cannot affect the home we have, how can we approach the maker? Well, in the middle of this helplessness and our total alienation from God, he came for us. Why? Why? It still remains. Why? Nothing attractive about us. Totally rejecting him. Insisting that we can be the masters of our own destinies. And yet he came. From the position of all power and authority, he came to give. To give. In Romans, Paul writes, The free gift is not like the trespass. The grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, have abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In other words, 
if God worked on the basis of just rewards, giving what is deserved, whether good or bad, everyone dies. Everyone dies. That's the Adam system. The Adam system is life for obedience, death for disobedience. That's what Paul's saying. By the free gift is not like that one man's trespass and how it worked. Because God offers grace. God offers something alien to human beings. He offers grace. He offers his own everlasting life and power as a gift. And it must be received as a gift, not as a just reward. If we try and get ourselves into thinking about the goodness of God as a just reward to us, we're way off track. We have not understood. So the arrangement is reversed. Um, in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. With the result that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the gospel. It's gospel. Sin brought judgment. Just reward brings judgment. The work of Christ brought rightness. Rightness restored. And that rightness given to us as a gift, leads to eternal life. Rightness that is so far from us, and yet it is given to us. Rightness. And it leads to eternal life. This is the gospel that the church has proclaimed through the centuries. Even in the dumbest days of the church, this central gospel was there. It was pronounced weekly. You can be saved from death. Grace can reign as rightness. The rightness of God. Restored to all who receive Jesus as Lord. Jesus as Lord is rightness. It's the way into the, the never-ending kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's the way in. Salvation. But it's also the way of the kingdom. Often, particularly because most of us have been, we've been raised in uh, evangelical churches. We are still in an evangelical church. This is. Um, one of the misconstruals was to begin to think about the gospel only as that thing which brings people into the kingdom. The gospel isn't just for non-believers. It's for believers. It's not just to get us saved. It's to walk the way of salvation. It's for believers. The grace and power that restores people to life is just as relevant for us who continue to need life, who continue to need change in us. 
I don't think anyone here thinks of yourself as living perfection. But if you do, you're way off. You need transformation. This should tell us something about how grace is received. About how, how grace and resurrection power flow in us. That it's part of the gospel that saves. It requires a cry for help. A sense of need. Because just as God has shown us in Jesus, in the fact of his coming, the need, God has said throughout the Bible, he gives grace to the humble. A humble and contrite heart he will never deny. If you bring him a humble heart, he will never turn away from that. Now we know this is difficult for the unbelieving heart to admit. It, it's the very thing that every person outside the kingdom doesn't want to accept. They need salvation. They need mercy. A fallen being doesn't want mercy. Doesn't want to have to accept grace. A fallen person wants to be enough. Wants to be taken as sufficient. Take me on my merits because I, I am enough. But this, this struggle, it also troubles the hearts of people in the kingdom. It troubles the people of Christ's kingdom. Because we live in a world that, that opposes God. So we're constantly receiving messages, hearing messages, that you ought to be regarded as sufficient. So if a world that opposes the mercy of God and opposes surrender to that mercy is constantly speaking that message to us, it gets in. Whether we want it to or not, it gets in. The message that whatever you do, it should be regarded as good, as long as it's authentic, as long as you're just being you, authentically you, then it must be good. To be you must be good. Everything you do should just be accepted because it comes from who you are. That was Satan's original deception. The message hasn't changed. It's been constant since the fall. You don't actually need God. But God has, God has said that we are accepted and we are beloved because of who he is. A gracious God. Not because of what we do. Whatever we do. We're accepted and beloved not because of just deserts, but because of who he is, the loving God. We're accepted by gift. We are accepted by grace. Again, the gospel. No one, according to what we do and according to what just comes from our flesh, can stand. We all die. We are accepted because he is gracious. Christians are accepted because God has put his spirit in us. Not because he's decided that we were the good-looking ones 
or that there was something about us that was a little more appealing. None of that. None of that. If you could have known me, none of that. (laughs) We are not the well-behaved ones. We have life and rightness, righteousness, because he's come to dwell in us. It's the only reason. We have it because of him. It's not that he affirms all we do. In fact, in fact, he has set out to change us. One of the major works of the Spirit in us is to change us. Having given grace to make us alive, choose your metaphor, to wake us up, to bring us out of darkness, to to give us life, he now continues to give us grace to restore the design that he put in us, to change us to what he intended from what we've wrecked. We struggle with this. I struggle with this. I trust you struggle with this. And our struggle has a name. It's called pride. Pride. And almost as often through the scriptures as God assures us of his grace and his forgiveness for the humble, he also declares that he opposes and he resists the proud. So as with every truth, there is a way that it gets choked. And pride is the way that the grace of God is choked. And that is why it's Satan's primary message. Choke grace. That's what he wants. What does this look like? Looking in James chapter 4 now. From Romans 5, that's where, to to James chapter 4. James is treating the subject. He's explaining that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he follows in verse 11... Do not speak evil against one another in the Lord's household. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against God's law. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The core idea here is setting oneself in the place of God. Satan's temptation. Setting oneself in the place of God. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is not you. Satan, the, the father of pride... That's what he sought. He sought it for himself. He sought to be in the place of God. And so his endless temptation is for humans to think of themselves as the judge of right and wrong. But that is God's place and only God's place. He is the judge. He is the measurer of right and wrong. The current move in our culture of subjectivity, meaning to make oneself the measurer of what's right and To make that judgment according to what feels right for yourself, that is essentially the satanic move. And it directly opposes the authority of God and the right of God to say what's right and wrong. He never gives up that right. The pride 
of claiming the authority of judgment, it, it works itself out then in relationship to others and in relationship to the self. So James warns against judging others and determining their worth or their value according to your own personal standard. What, how, how does one measure up to what I think? There's also a rebellious move of setting oneself up as judge of oneself. To judge oneself is to set one's, oneself in the place of God. How does that work? God never gives up the right of rule. His values are what is truly valuable. His standards are eternal. He is the judge. So even in regard to myself, I, I do not have the right of rule. I do not have the, the authority to say what is right and what is wrong. That comes elsewhere. That comes from God. Here's what Paul says about it in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 5. It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court of judgment. In fact, Paul says, I do not even judge myself. Although I am not aware of anything against myself, I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then... Each one will receive his commendation from God. We assert pride and we choke grace when we exalt ourselves and we condemn ourselves. So whether we're puffing ourselves up, excusing ourselves, or whether we're condemning ourselves, both of those moves our pride. So both self-exaltation and self-condemnation are in agreement with Satan, the enemy of our souls, who says, you have the right of judgment. It is God's judgment that matters. And he has declared his people free. He's declared his people free. As James says... He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. And he gives more grace. So, let's conclude. The way that we remain open to this resurrection power in us, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that's available to us, is to live in reference to the authority of God. James verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He just will. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This is promise language. He will do it. He gives grace to the humble. He will. 
We resist the devil and we reject pride by submitting to God. It's one and the same act. I submit to God, I am resisting the devil. Putting yourself under God's authority means the authority of evil is driven out. It's excluded. It can't remain when I submit to the authority of God. Practically, this looks like bringing your thoughts and bringing your actions into light. It's bringing your internal disposition to the inspection of God. To say, you, God, have the right to measure what's in here. Insisting on your own rightness or a justification for sin is pride. Justification for sin stops you in the movement of submission, stops that internal disposition of openness to God, to search me, to try me. It keeps you in the dark. It wrongfully withholds parts of you from God's gift. Back to light, he shines on. He shines, continually shines. But holding back parts of you or a segment of your life from God keeps God's light from shining there. He shines on you, but your color's not brought out. He shines, but the full restoration is not present there. Your designed, redeemed self doesn't glow in those areas. When you submit to God, when you accept his rule in every matter, his light shines everywhere and his resurrection power flows. Father in heaven, we praise you for how you've made us. That there is a design being restored. We praise you that your Holy Spirit is at work in us. We praise you that you have committed, you yearn jealously over your spirit that it would, you would bring out who we are. We, we praise you that you do not give up on us, though we turn from you. You are a merciful God. Thank you for not giving us according to our just desserts. Thank you for gift. Thank you for grace. In Jesus' name.